So would you please open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and let's read Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, and if you would stand, please. Here's the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Please be seated. The, the, the history of mankind, if you think about history of mankind from beginning to now, is a history marked by war. The history of mankind has, is drenched in war, warfare. Uh, historians who have studied history, they say that the, the times of peace compared to the time of war is very small, relatively, compared. So seasons of peace is very small compared to the amount of years and times of wars that we have throughout history. Uh, what happens is the comfort that we have in America, I would say in the past century, past decades, until the last war, discomfort uh, that we, we have had has actually caused us to be deceived into thinking that there are no wars. War is something from the past. War is something that's just in history. We just want to enjoy the, the comfort and the prosperity that we have. And we think that's what's happening throughout the whole world. And the reality is that war rages all over the place. And it's tempting to bring the social comfort that we have in America into the Christian life. That's the great temptation, is to think because we have some comfort in society, that this comfort should be manifested in the church, in the Christian life. So we are deceived into thinking that our Christian life is something comfortable, happy, cozy, without war, without struggle, without bloody and violent persecution. We start listening to Christians, in, especially here, where they just want to move to the country and be far away from everybody and enjoy peace and just a good piece of land far away. And as long as we have just one Starbucks nearby that we can walk, get some coffee, we are happy. It reminds me of the movie The Patriot. Remember? Mel Gibson, he's far away. I don't want to be involved in this war. I'm done with this. And, and I just want to enjoy my life and my family here far away. Remember, the son wants to enjoy the, the fight. And he's, no, you can't do that. Just, and that's how so many of us are. Just, let me just enjoy my life. I don't want any war. I don't want anything related to battle, any struggle. And we forget that the Bible is a war book. Think about the Bible. The Bible is a war book. Our God, He's revealed in the Bible as a God of war. So, for example, in Exodus 15, Exodus 15 says in verse 3, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Or in Psalm 24, Psalm 24, Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That's how God reveals Himself as a God of war. 
Jesus is painted throughout the Gospels. You cannot read the Gospels and, and not see Jesus as painted and, and described as a warrior who is coming to wage war against the enemy. Think about all the deliverances that Jesus performs and accomplished, healing people, delivering people. It's all battle. It's war language. It's a picture of God in the Old Testament now coming to Jesus in His person. The first and the last chapter of the Bible show the story of the Scripture to be a story of war. So you think about Genesis 3, right in the beginning of the Bible, and then you have the war between the serpent and God, and the war between the serpent and the seed of the woman, who is the Messiah. And you look at towards the last book of the Bible, it's also about the war between the lamb, the seed, and the dragon, the serpent. So the whole book, we can say, is this story between uh, is this war between the, the, the serpent and the lamb, the seed. Oh, the Bible is a book of human and divine battles or war. So I like what Reitman, he says, uh, Tremper Longman, he says, uh, violence, conflict, and warfare are found throughout the Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. We read of strife and fighting. Only the first two chapters of the Bible creation and the last two restoration fall outside the long period of human conflict. But the conflict is more than human. God himself, God himself enters history and takes the role of a warrior fighting both human and spiritual enemies. But sadly, the only thing that so many in churches understand of the language of war and the army and the military aspect of the spiritual warfare is the little children's... Remember that song that you learn when a little kid in church? I'm in the Lord's army. Yeah, so that's how people think. Oh, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot in the artillery, right? But I'm in the Lord's army. And, and, that's, and that's what we think about spiritual warfare, or Ephesians 6. It's always connected to little kids. When in reality, that's the story of God. God is a God of war. Not for little kids. Christ Jesus came to wage war against the serpent. And then His victory inaugurated a new era for His people where we live in between the times. This time where Jesus has bound the strong man. He has put the, the, the serpent, the dragon in chains, but yet has not been consummated. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about, showing that. So in Revelation 20, Revelation 12, that's the same story from different angles. We see the dragon, the dragon has been in chains. What does it mean? He explains. The dragon is in chains that he cannot deceive the world so the gospel can go forth. And that's what we see since Christ ascending to heaven, the gospel is going forth. The nations have been hearing the gospel. Satan could no longer deceive the nations like he did under the old covenant. With the ascension of Christ, the gospel is being spread. But that doesn't mean that Satan has no cruelty or power to hurt and harm people. No. That's what Revelation 12 tells us. Because the, our enemy knows that his defeat is certain and that his time is short, then he's just on the loose to hurt, destroy the church, to cause Christians to fall in sin, deny the faith, forsake the church, dishonor our triune God. 
So there is a war, a war of battles, and the Bible is very clear about that. Sadly, many Christians say, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with war and struggle and, and battles. No. So I'm sorry, that's, the Christian life is not for you. And then actually, I'm even more sorry for you because then you're going to be in a war even though you don't know who is Yahweh, the warrior. So there is no escape. So that's why Paul, as he comes to Ephesians chapter 6, he comes towards the end of this beautiful letter and he just brings, he's bringing back to the, a conclusion and he reminds us of this battle that we have. Even though chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, God has a people, God has formed a people, God has united a people in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies, yet we are still here. And then look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about unity in the body of Christ. So he's talking about the church. This beautiful group of people whom the Lord has put together. Then in chapter 5, he continues and then he moves and he starts talking about family. So you have church, you have family. So towards the end of chapter 5, wives and husbands. And then chapter 6, he starts talking about children and parents. Slaves and masters. And you have this idea, yes, the good life. Unity in the church. Unity in the home. Parents, husbands loving their wives. Wives loving their husbands. Children obeying. Parents treating well their kids. Servants, slaves obeying their masters. Masters being kind to their slaves. And you think, yes. And suddenly Paul says, wait a second, there is a war. Not all is going to be that happy as we think. There is a battle. And I like what John Stott says. He writes, The abrupt transition from the previous paragraphs to the hideous malice of the devilish plots in this section causes a painful shock. Whoa, wait a second. You're talking about the beautiful unity in the church and in the household, the family. And suddenly you bring this war thing it says, causes a painful shock, but, but an essential shock. We all wish we could spend our lives in undisturbed tranquility among our loved ones at home and in the fellowship of God's people. But the way of the escapist has been effectively blocked. Christians have to face the prospect of conflict with God's enemy and theirs. So this enemy will attack the unity of the church. This enemy will attack the unity of the house, the family. And that's why he comes and finishes reminding us, yes, we have all these blessings, we are called for all these things, but we have an enemy who will strive with all his power to prevent us from living this life right now. And that's why Paul says, but God has given us something. To fight this enemy. And God has given us something essential. And that's the armor that he's going to give us in chapter 6 here. Uh, also in chapter 5 verse 1. Look at that. Chapter 5 verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. And part of our... Think about... Children are always imitating their parents. Right? So a lot of times... The kids show up in the living room and they're dressed like me. So one of the girls has a tie, a Bible in the hand and yelling. Or 
you know, or dress like mommy and and children do that. And that's what the Lord's saying. You imitate your father. As beloved children, now you imitate your father. And there is one aspect of our father that he's a warrior. He fights. He's a man of war, our God. And we have the duty of imitating our God in dressing up, putting on the armor, and fighting this, en- this enemy. Amen? So here's the outline of this morning. We're going to be looking at the good armor. That's the first part of verse 13. And then the evil day. So just a contrast, the good armor and the evil day. So we're going to be just in verse 13 today. Uh, it's a short verse, but it's very profound. And I think it's very important for all of us here. So, Paul says, Therefore, here's the ESV. The ESV says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. If you have a different translation, for example, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, this is why, or the Lexan English Bible says, because of this, and I think it's a better translation, he's giving a reason, because of this, that's why you must put on the full armor. Why? Look at verses 11 and 12. He just told us that we have the devil with his schemes against us, and this devil is not alone. He has the principalities, powers, an army of demons attacking us. That's why, so he's saying, that's why you must put on the full armor of God. The whole armor. It's because we have a cunning enemy, an enemy full of schemes, a spiritual enemy who has a vast host of demons on his side, an enemy full of hate, and we need a very special armory to fight against this enemy. And God gives us. Ian DeGreed, he says, According to the Bible, life is not a picnic, but a battle. An armed struggle against a powerful adversary. To engage in that battle properly, we need a spiritual makeover in which our, our flimsy, inadequate, natural attire is replaced by suitable armor and weaponry. weaponry. That's exactly what we need. We cannot fight Satan on our own. Remember the sons of Siva. Remember in Acts... They're trying to fight demons on their own. Remember what they say? Who are you? I know Paul. But who are you? And they destroy them. They run away naked, beat up. By... No, we cannot do on our own. We need the Lord to be dressed, dressing us with His own armor. So He says in verse you can compare verse 11 with verse 13. It's very similar. Two different words, but it's very similar. So in verse 11, Paul says, put on. And now he says, take up. And both verbs tell us something. We need to do our part. There is this, put on. I'm pretty sure that this morning, Carson was not just laying down in bed and Jeff came and put the shirt on him. No. He got up, I hope. He put his t-shirt on. Right? Sam, he got up. He got dressed. He put on his clothes. Why? We do that. We need, and that's the beautiful aspect of God's concurrence. He's working in us, so empowering us, so we can do the things that He calls us to do. Concurrence, that you work. He's working together with us. It's all because of God's grace and power. And yet, He calls us to fight, to strive, to put on the armor, to labor hard. 
There is nothing that we can do apart from the empowering grace of God, and yet He commands us to act. And we can only put on the armor of God. Why? Because Christ has what? Empowered us. He has literally put us on into Himself, taking us into Himself. And that's why now we can put on Him. Because He first took us up. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. We can put on the armor of God. Why? Because God put us inside His army. He brought us into Himself. So that's the only reason why Paul can tell the church, put on, take up. Because God has worked in you. Now He can work. Now He can do that. And he says the armor of God. The armor of God. This armor belongs to God. This armor originates with God. This armor is used by God. And this armor is given by God. That's what means the armor of God. This armor comes down from above. God is above. God is in heaven. So this armor comes from above. And James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from where? From the Father. And that's the good and perfect gift that the Father is giving us. So this armor does not originate with man's philosophies, with man's ideology. No, that's God's armor. That's His gift to all of us. And it's the armor of God also because God wears this armor. That's something we forget, but God wears His armor. So I want to invite you to turn your, your Bible to Isaiah, Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 has a very interesting text, and I believe that Paul is borrowing much of his imagery, imagery and theology from Isaiah 59. So he says, in verse 15, Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, there was no mediator, no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. I was never able to finish the series, the mini-series on Isaiah 53, the comedy of <laughs> the resurrection. But I think in the first sermon I told you about the arm of the Lord, because in Isaiah 52 he talks about the arm of the Lord. And I told you that the arm of the Lord is the servant. Is the Messiah. And it's this beautiful aspect that the arm belongs and yet it's different. It's the same and yet different from Yahweh. And that's beautiful because it shows the second person of the Trinity or Jesus as a person of the Trinity. And here he says, then his own arm, and if you understand Isaiah, he's talking about, yes, it's the Lord, but it's a different person. 
of the Godhead. And that's the Messiah, the servant. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Look at that. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing, rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So you see the Lord himself doing what? Putting his armor to fight and bring salvation to his people. I like what Griever, one scholar says, he says, The extent of Israel's sin was so great that they lack even one person to intercede for them, as in former days. Hence, Israel's only hope for salvation was if God fought for them. And this is what he did. So, the Lord comes and he puts on, he comes to fight. There is the need of this intercessor, this mediator. And the arm of the Lord, the Messiah, the servant will come. And he will do what we need, bring salvation. And he comes as a warrior. So in chapter 53, we see him coming as a suffering servant. And now we see him coming as a warrior. These different aspects of the Messiah. So he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So do you see where Paul is borrowing the language from? Can you see where Paul is getting his language? And he has a whole context in mind. So Yahweh comes in the person of the Messiah to fight armed with his own armor. Also in Isaiah, Isaiah 11 Verses 4 through 5, the Messiah comes as a warrior. The, 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 the one that's coming from Jesse, from David. And he says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the New Testament now transferred the rod to a sword of his mouth because the rod was used as a sword. So, just the sword of the Messiah. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his weight and waste in faithfulness the belt of his loins. But you see the Messiah once again dressed with an armor to fight for his people and bring salvation. So Paul is urging his readers to take up the armor that in Isaiah belongs to Yahweh and his Davidic Messiah who is to come. So, the armor of God is the same armor that Christ Jesus put on when he was alive, fighting against Satan and his demonic armies. Think about Jesus coming and he comes dressed with the armor to fight Satan. Amen? He's clothed with truth. He has the belt of truth because he's fighting against Satan, the, the deceiver, the father of all lies. He comes with righteousness. He comes with salvation. So Jesus, when he comes, he comes dressed with this armory. Jesus is clothed this armor to, uh, to wage war, conquer, and make salvation a gift for His people. So that's very important. That's the same armor that Jesus was wearing. 
But not only that, but this armor also, I believe, not only belongs to Jesus, but this armor is Jesus Christ Himself. The armor of God is not only the armor of Christ, but the armor of God is actually the person of Christ Jesus. And Paul says, put on the whole or the full armor, the panoply, referring to refers to the complete equipment of a heavy armored soldier, the full armor. And that's one piece. Even though we have different parts, these different parts are not separated. They're all together. A soldier could not go to a battle just wearing a helmet. The panoply is the whole thing. It's one thing that he needs to wear. Yes, there are different parts, but it's one thing. A soldier doesn't go just with a sword. He needs all the other parts, the panoply. It reminds us this armor is one. Christ is one. One church, one Lord, one spirit, one army. One armor. One full armor for His church. And I believe that every single attribute as we walk through next Lord's Day, we're going to see that's an attribute of Jesus Christ Himself. And Paul shows us in a different passage in Romans 13 how the armor of God is actually Jesus Christ. So in Romans 13, verses 12 through 14, look how Paul says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. What he's saying is, this present dark age is coming to an end. The day is coming. The new era when God will Consummate all these things. For now, it is a present dark age that we are living. But it's coming towards an end, and the day is coming. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on what? The armor of light. God is what? God is light. In Him there is no darkness. So it's the same thing as you say, put on the armor of what? God. Put on the armor of light, put on the armor of God. The same thing. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling or, or jealousy. And then he says, but put on whom? Do you see the parallel? Put on the armor of, the armor of God, the armor of light, and then put on what? Jesus Christ. That's the same thing. To put on the armor of God is to put on whom? Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes. So, uh, we will develop this, but we know the belt of truth. Jesus is truth. The breastplate of righteousness. righteousness. Jesus is the righteous one in our righteousness. The shield of faith. Jesus is the faithful one. He is the emblem of faithfulness. Helmet of salvation. Jesus is our salvation. You shall name Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. Jesus is the Word. The preacher of the gospel of peace. When he talks about the sandals, it's the readiness to preach the gospel. Jesus is the one who preaches peace, first of all. Ephesians 2.17 and 1.2. So, it's very tempting, and I have done that in the past, to preach through the, 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 the different parts of the armor. And it's very cool, you know, especially you get pictures of Roman soldiers and you try to explain everything about what the helmet does and what the belt does and what the shield does. So you try to develop that and make it really cool, especially for young people. It's always attractive. 
And then he tried to teach them what they need to do and how to do that. And he, that's how you do it. And you need to read your Bible and you need to be grounded in the truth. And now you need to be going around and preaching the gospel. And here are ways of being ready to proclaim the gospel. So we can go through this whole armory giving a bunch of things to do and yet never preach Jesus Christ. That, that, that's, I, I have done that. That's crazy. We can literally preach all the parts of the armor without preaching Christ Jesus. We can clothe ourselves with good works and yet never put on Jesus Christ. <laughs> it becomes a, a series on good works, how to do good, and yet never understand that we are called to, uh, to put on Christ. Be clothed with Jesus Christ. Let Jesus surround us, embrace us, and then empower us. The full armor is not found in good deeds, but in Christ's death and resurrection. William Garnell, he has the famous Puritan book, The Armor of God. It's a thick book. He says, what is the armor? First, by armor is meant Christ. Until Christ is put on, the creature is unarmed. It's not a man's morality and philosophical virtues that all that will repel a temptation sent with a full charge from Satan's cannon. No, it's only the person of Christ. So therefore, let us put on Christ Jesus. Let us dress ourselves daily with the Lord Jesus. What is to put on Jesus? What is to put on Christ? It's to enjoy fellowship with Him. It's to delight in His presence. It's to love Him. It's to treasure Him. It's to enjoy His presence. That's what we are doing today. We are put on Christ. We sing to Him. We pray together. We enjoy the fellowship. We hear His words to us. We speak back to Him through singing, through prayers. That is to put on Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what Paul is telling us to do. We don't make ourselves savable. We don't save ourselves by put on, putting on Jesus. No, it's because He has already come to us, embraced us, and dwelt within us. Now we can daily the work of sanctification. That's what Paul tells us. That's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian. is the one who is always dressing himself as the new man, the new Adam, Jesus Christ. So this armor is good, this armor, this armor is beautiful, glorious, because it's the Father's good gift to His children. And the good gift is Jesus Christ Himself. Amen? And now, the last part, the evil day. So we have the good armor, the beautiful armor, because we have an evil day. So he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. What does Paul mean by the evil day? What is the evil day? The evil day. Ah, so, scholars vary in their interpretation. There are basically three different interpretations. So one is that the evil day would be the, the final day of judgment. That will be a day of calamity. The final day when Jesus Christ returns. And we've got to agree with that that it is. Certainly, will be a day of calamity. And the Hebrew word for evil sometimes could be the same word we use for calamity or disaster. And will be a day of tremendous 
pain. We know that as we come towards the end of the times, as we come towards the second coming, things will get more and more diabolical, darker, you can say more and more evil. So it can be a reference to this final days leading to the final day. Uh, others believe that the evil day is a reference between the first and the second coming, the time of inauguration and the time of consummation. And we know that because Paul himself talks about this evil age in Galatians 1.4. And in Ephesians 5.16, Paul says that these days are evil. So referring from the time of the first coming to the second coming. And the third interpretation would be that the, the evil day is one specific day when Satan comes to create havoc in the church. When he comes, it's this specific time, this specific season, when Satan is unleashed to come and just bring nastiness towards Christians, a church, a family. So what do we do? What is the evil day? And I believe these three are not mutually exclusive. They're all together. Yes, because we are living in evil Days, these days are evil. Because it's an evil age, we can expect some days to be nastier than others. And of course, we'll culminate with even more nastiness as time goes. So, we live in this evil age. The days are evil because Satan and his armies are angry and furious with the certainty of their loss. And during these evil days, there are specific days and seasons when we feel in a unique way the anger and the schemes of our enemy. That's what I understand for the evil day. And, and I think we have some grounds for that because in Jesus' temptation, in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4 verse 13, remember that Jesus conquers Satan in the wilderness. Jesus conquers him but then we, we, we hear in verse 13, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until what? An opportunity. Opportune time, or just opportunity, a, a specific season, the, the Greek kairos. It's a specific season that Satan would come to try again. He saw that it didn't work. And then he comes back at a specific time to get Judas to get the religious leaders, to get him crucified. So there is this, yes, we live in our wartime, but there are those seasons that when Satan comes with vengeance and anger. So I like what F.F. Uh, F. Bruce writes. He says, the evil day, like the evil age, is the period between this is the period that is dominate, dominated by the forces of evil, with special emphasis perhaps on those occasions when the hostility of evil is experienced in exceptional power and, that, and the temptation to yield is strong. It's then that the panoply of divine grace and strength, and, and strength is indispensable, enabling the believer to resist the pressure and stand firm. And we all here would agree that not all days are equally evil. Amen? Can you imagine if all days were equally evil? We could not handle. So, even think about war. Even about during the war time, 
there are times, there are seasons where there is a little bit of tranquility. So you think about even soldiers in a wartime, there are some nights where they're laying in that field, staring at a starry sky, beautiful. For, for, for a few days, they're not listening to bombs and the enemy mar- the enemies marching towards them. So even during the war, there are some times of tranquility and peace, right? Think about the Iraq war. And even during those times, there were soldiers that could be driving for days. And no ambush, nothing. Until one day, they get ambushed. So, and that's what we need to understand. There is, we are in a war, but there are times and seasons of peace and tranquility. So, for example, in Acts 9.31, Acts chapter 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, had shalom, and was being built up and walking the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So there was a season of peace, especially because Paul has just been converted. The greatest enemy of the church has just been converted. So Luke tells us that there was a season of peace. But I would say that it's during this this season of peace that our guards must be up high because it's during the season of peace that we tend to do what? Ah, that's so good. Look at the love in the church. Look at the joy. Look at the growth. And then what happens? Guards down. Yes, it comes to create havoc. Ay, ay, ay. He gives us seasons of tranquility during the wartime, but especially during those times of peace and tranquility that we must be aware that the enemy is around us. Amen? Clinton Arnold, he writes, Paul is convinced that, the belie- that believers live in the present evil age. Galatians 1.4, Ephesians 2.2. 2. An era characterized by demonic activity and filled with various forms of evil. The difficulties of the present age will only intensify as the coming of the Lord draws close. The final resolution will come only when God intervenes and all of the rebellious powers are brought under the headship of Jesus. Then he says, until that time, Satan and his forces will plot and strategize on how they can oppose God's redemptive plan, assail the church, and torment the lives of believers. An evil day experience comes at various intervals throughout the lives of God's people when the powers of darkness execute their strategies in an effort to cause believers to fall. So, the evil day will come to all of us. Amen? Especially as we strive to walk in holiness, as we strive to glorify the Lord, you can be certain that Satan will be targeting us. And the evil day comes, think about that, the evil one, the evil day. The evil one, Satan, how does he come to people? He comes as presenting something good. Amen? He's the father of lies, he's a deceiver. He comes as an angel of light. So remember that the, the, the evil day will not come to you as something evil, nasty, dark, with pictures of hell. 
No, the evil day will come as something that will give you pleasure, something good. That's why you need to be very attentive. The evil day is the time when Satan and his allies ambush you and you're not expecting. It's when you receive the invitation from a co-worker to go out with him or her. Oh, let's just go out have coffee. Let's have dinner. And you're married. And you know you should not be doing that. But catch you out of guard. And you go. It's when the opportunity to fall into sexual immorality appears as something that will give you pleasure. It's when the opportunity to cheat and lie shows up unexpectedly. When the occasion for gossip appears, the opportunity to commit fraud. And let me remind all of us that our personal sins will affect the whole body. Sometimes this evil day comes individually and actually affects the whole body. It becomes an evil day for the whole church. Remember King David. The evil day came and he was all comfortable at home in his palace and it was wartime. Remember that? King David, that was wartime. He was all comfortable at home, his guard down, and then what happened? The evil day. And the evil day came as a beautiful woman. Pleasure. And it make me happy. I can do that. And you know the story of his family afterwards. The evil day is not necessarily a 24-hour period of time, but a season when the dragon is allowed by the sovereign Lord to attack us full throttle. And he will attack many different areas of our lives, our health, our close relationships, finances, family, ministry, our faith. Think about Job. For us as a church, the evil day is that time or season when Satan will ambush and trap us with Political persecution, trying to bring disunity, causing some to abandon the church. A season of cruel and ruthless persecution. Time of slander and false accusation that will cause some to lose heart and forsake the assembly. The temptation to please men instead of pleasing the Lord. But we must be armed with the full arm of God. Amen? Because the evil day is, is around us. Is around us. So let us be alert and armed for when the evil day comes upon us, we are close with Christ. And we can withstand. We can stand and withstand together that season of Satan's attempt to destroy us. And let me tell you that the evil day tests us. That's a wonderful day to test our faith. There is no better day to test our faith and our maturity in Christ as the evil day. Amen? What are you going to do when the evil day comes? And then Paul says, Therefore take up the whole arm of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's a, an awkward expression, having done all. So some people think that after you fought your battles, you keep standing. No, I think the idea here that Paul is saying, because we have a satanic army against us, we must put on the full armor of God that God has given us. And then having taken up the whole armor, we are empowered to stand and stand. That's what he's saying. 
And having done all, it's not after, after fighting the battles, but having done all, it's after putting on the full armor. Then you're ready to stand. And you see the, the emphasis here is in standing. Look in your Bibles. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, uh, to stand. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore. So you see the emphasis is what? To stand. Stand. And that's an important word. Stand and withstand. The Greek histemi was used for soldiers to hold a watch post. It could also mean to stand and hold out in a critical position on a battlefield. And then you have anthistemi, and you can see the same root there, the, the histemi. Anthistemi means to resist by actively opposing pressure or power. So anthistemi means to oppose, to rebel, to set oneself against. And let me tell you, there is nothing passive about that. There is absolutely nothing passive about withstanding and standing firm. The Word of God calls us to do that. So, for example, James, and he used the same word here, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Very similar to what Paul tells us. Put on the full armor, dwell in Christ, and then you can withstand, resist. Or Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he used the same, same word. Withstand, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. What is the opposite of standing firm or withstanding? What is the opposite of? Standing firm and withstanding. Falling down, right? Yes, being thrown to and fro, right? That's the opposite of standing firm. To abandon your post, to desert the place that you're supposed to be, to be tossed around, and that's Satan's goal, to toss Christians to and fro. And if you go back to Ephesians, it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul tells us that the ascended Christ, the victorious Lord, He gave gifts to the church. And one of the gifts that He gave was pastors to equip the church so the church will no longer be what? Tossed to and fro by the schemes, methodia, the schemes of men. Satan comes rushing upon us through his diabolical schemes in order to toss us around from communion with Jesus. That's what the devil loves to do. He comes, he comes running to toss us around. I love what John Stott says. He says, This fourfold emphasis on the need to stand or withstand shows that the apostles' concern is for Christians' stability. Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. And Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. 
Paul wants to see Christians so strong and stable that they remain, remain firm even against the devil's schemes. And even when the day of evil comes, there is a time of special pressure for such stability both of character and in crisis, the armor of God is essential. Sorry, I thought I had there, so here we go. Look at he says. Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold. And we as a church refuse to be wobbly Christians. Amen? No wobbly Christianity here. Firm in Christ. Standing firm in Him. We will stand. We will resist. We will stand firm. Clothed with Christ. Way too many. Way too many people who profess to be Christians are being tossed to and fro. Wobbly people. Wobbly people. Our Lord was not wobbly. He was firm. He is firm. Amen? So, to finish, I just want to remind you that Paul calls the whole church to put on the armor. This call, we, I say that because it's tempting for us to read, and I always just think about me. Think that the you here is you singular, but the you is you plural. Y'all. Y'all. The whole church. It's for the whole church to put on together, to dress up together. This is not a call for pastors, elders, deacons, and those in leadership, but it's a call for all the members of the church, from the youngest to the oldest member. From the most immature to the most mature, men, women, poor, rich, educated, and uneducated, we are all commanded to put on the armor of God. There is no exception. If you're a member of this church, it doesn't matter. There is no exception. We all together are to be dressing up, putting on, taking up Christ Jesus and being clothed with Him. Amen? Every single member has the responsibility of taking up and putting on the glorious armor that God has given us. Now let us remember, let us remember that the command is for all of us and we can only resist if we are together. If you are standing by yourself, if you are standing by yourself and a person who is stronger than you comes running and hits against your body, Guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall. You cannot stand. Doesn't matter how strong your base. And remember, the devil will come we are not expecting. And he's going to get you on your back. And if you're by yourself, you cannot stand and withstand. There's absolutely no way. Doesn't matter how strong you think you are you will be taken down. You will be wobbly. But let me tell you, get two, three, four with locked arms and tell that same person to come. You will stand. You will stand. And that's why the call is for the whole church, the whole body, marching together, standing firm together, because when the evil day comes, Guess what? He will come and hit you hard. But you're not going to be wobbly. You're not going to fall. 
because you're going to have others holding you. And these others are holding you because Christ is holding us. Amen? That's, that's very important. We, it's so easy to think about the armor of God as something very personal. Oh, this morning I need to put the helmet of salvation. Oh, this morning I need to get the sword. Amen. But remember, that's the whole body. Lord, help us as a church to put on the full armor. Help us. Am I praying for Abby? Am I praying for Tracy? Lord, clothe Tracy with her armor today. Lord, clothe Annette with her armor today. Lord, help. Help Elizabeth to put on the armor. And Lee and Matt, we, we need to do that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we finish right here. But Ephesians chapter 5, I think it's important because it's very similar to what we see here in chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 15. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you parallel Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. You can put together and then you get Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the, the armor of God. And you see a parallel here. Paul is talking about evil days. He's talking about us to be wise, alert. And what he says is, in Ephesians 5, how are you going to redeem your time in these evil days? How are you going to be using your time wisely? And then he says, in the fellowship of the church, singing to one another, making melody in your heart, giving thanks to the Lord together, and submitting to one another. The evil days coming, Ephesians chapter 6. How are you going to resist that? Like a good soldier being sober-minded, but together is their body. Together with their soldiers. That's the only way. Praise the Lord for being so gracious to us and placing us in a community of people who love Him and love one another. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that You'd help us to apply all these wonderful truths that You have given us. Help us as a church to put on the full armor, Lord. Help us to be an encouragement to each other. And I pray that you'll deliver us from the evil one in the evil day. Help us to be clothed with Christ Jesus, clothed with humility, gentleness, kindness, holiness, hating sin, loving, purity, we pray for your help, Lord. Help this church to be a church 
Let's stand firm. We stand in the Lord. We refuse to be wobbly Christians, Lord. We want to be men and women who stand firm in You. So help us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.